conviction plus pardon. And he'd actually probably have his best outcome. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's panel, returning to the roundup is the inimitable Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute and often guest host of Politicology. Lucy, it's great to see you. Welcome back. It's good to be with you again. Also returning to the roundup is Zach Tukowski. Zach is a Democratic political consultant from North Carolina. He's a principal at Title Fight and the founder and CEO at Brackish Solutions. Previously, he served as the campaign manager for Katie Hill's successful congressional campaign, flipping a seat from red to blue, and as the political director of the Lincoln Project. Zach, welcome back. Ron, it's great to be here with y'all. Up first this week, we're going to dive into the latest Donald Trump indictment, why it's a much more difficult case to prove than the documents case, and whether President Biden should think about clemency. Then we're going to look at Ohio voters knocking down a ballot initiative that would make it harder to amend their constitution, and how we can or should balance direct democracy with our legislative system. Then we're going to discuss the first purge of Medicaid rolls in three years, how it could impact the Biden re-election bid, managing increasing deficits with the political fallout of cutting programs, and what connection it could have to the gerontocracy. And finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to break down what Lizzo and Donald Trump have in common. Yes, you heard that right. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of your show notes today. All right. On Tuesday, the New York Times reporting team of Maggie Haberman, Charlie Savage, and Luke Broadwater reported on a memo outlining the plan to use false slates of electors to subvert the 2020 election. And that memo was first revealed in the most recent indictment of Donald Trump after the federal grand jury investigation in D.C. It wasn't uncovered by the congressional investigation, we should note. Chesbro acknowledged from the start the plan was, in his words, a bold, controversial strategy that wasn't likely to be supported by the Supreme Court. But the plan had two goals buy the Trump campaign more time to win litigation that would deprive Biden of electoral votes and or add to Trump's column. So while the fake elector strategy was already known, the document provided new details about how the plot originated, and it showed how it was discussed behind the scenes. They called the fake electors meeting and voting as a routine measure that is necessary to ensure that there would be an electoral slate if the courts or state legislatures later decided that Trump had won the state. The memo also laid out the position that Vice President Pence could take, quote, the position that it is his constitutional power and duty alone as president of the Senate to both open and count the votes, and that Pence could decide which slate of electors to count. So this memo plays a central role in Special Counsel Jack Smith's indictment of Donald Trump in his attempts to overturn the 2020 election, and that indictment includes four counts. One, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Two, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Three, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. And finally, four, conspiracy against rights. So last week, filling in for me, Susan, Andy, and Lene discussed the indictment on the roundup, but this case now looks a lot harder to try than the Mar-a-Lago case. And part of that is because of how clear the evidence looks in the Mar-a-Lago case. But 
it's much trickier set of charges here. Prosecutors are going to need to convince a jury that Trump knew what he was saying was false and used those false statements to perpetrate a fraud. And it's not sufficient for it to be untrue or whether a reasonable person would know it wasn't true. They got to get in his head and they got to prove what was in his head. And part of me is kind of like, well, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> they're going to need to convince a jury that Trump knew he had lost the 2020 election and lied in an attempt to steal it. And the indictment only points to that. There's no smoking gun that Smith laid out in the indictment. And I think it's important to remember that this indictment is a summary of evidence collected and presented to the grand jury in building their case. It is not the sum total of evidence. So there could very well be additional evidence they're holding on to showing Trump's state of mind uh, that wasn't in the indictment. So uh, personally, I think we need to be realistic here. This is not a slam dunk case. So much of the conduct that's in the indictment is egregious, but obviously just because it's egregious or outrageous or craven or whatever word you want to rightly use doesn't mean it meets the standard of criminality here. So I think we should start with what should our expectations be as this uh, plays out? Zach, do you want to lead off? Sure. You know, I think that I would say that anyone that tells you with any degree of certainty how this is going to play out, I would probably be pretty skeptical of what they're saying. Uh, I, I don't think that any of us know. I think the things that really jump out to me here, though, um, are what is not disputed. Like, there is no disputing that he lied about these things. The question is, did he lie with intent to steal the election? But, like, it's shocking uh, what is accepted, what is treated as normal, what is not pushed back against by, by the, the Trump and defense counsel. The other thing that I'm keeping an eye on, we've seen folks on both sides of the aisle talk about this a little bit, about whether or not they should televise this trial. Um, there's a precedent since 1946 that that's not a thing that, that we do in the U.S. for federal trials. And I think that we're going to start to see more and more calls to change that. And, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. I, I, I do not believe that they will televise it, but it's kind of hard not to go down the rabbit hole of what if they did. Who does that actually help? Does that help Trump? Does that help the defense? Does that shift public opinion? Does it in, in, the, in the negative, in the positive? I don't know. Um, but I think that's something to keep an eye on. I think we'll, we'll hear, we will hear more and more calls to do just that. Lucy, do you think there's any reason to think that they would televise a trial like this and break the norm? It's hard to say whether or not they'll televise the trial. I'm also not sure it would make much of a difference because I think that the 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 content, let's say, in a trial that would be um, really like eye-catching would be testimony from Trump himself, right? Because Trump is such a loose cannon. And I doubt Trump will testify, actually. Um, and, and he's testifying in a way every day on True Social, right? So people like John Eastman, people like Ken Chesaborough, some Rudy Giuliani, I mean, okay, maybe not Rudy Giuliani, but some of these other people that we think might be co-conspirators, right, who could find themselves on the line in this trial, they don't have the kind of like Trump screw loose. I mean, they have a lot of screws loose in different ways, which we can talk about. But so I think you're not going to see John Eastman going on, you know, getting on the the podium and sounding completely insane um, because there there is he's he's just they're much more effective at kind of like hiding the the brain rot and the kind of brain worms. Although we can see from the Chesaboro memo that came out this week that the brainworms are strong to quite strong in some of these guys in a way that's surprising given given their background and their bona fides. So would it be nice to have a televised trial? 
Sure. I I love good daytime TV as much as the next gal. I'm not sure that it will be as consequential. I think that there are other ways to create a record around this. We also know that it is very unlikely to have much of an impact on how voters feel electorally. The way that the Republican base feels about this is pretty locked in. Um, I was interested to see that about 50% of Republican primary voters say that if Trump were convicted, that would make them feel he was unfit. Even so, I think given the timing of of some of these uh, sort of proceedings, even if that came to pass, you probably aren't going to get a big enough number that he is, uh, you know, loses the nomination over this. So, mm-hmm. I mean, not to go too many different directions with this, but I, I don't think it would make the kind of meaningful difference that we might hope for. It would certainly be fun to watch. Go ahead, Jeff. (laughs) Yeah, I I tend to agree with Lucy. I think it'll make for great TV, and I think it'll reinforce the things that people already think on both sides of of, of it. Um, A thing that I I just continue to marvel at is the this Chesboro Cheeseboro describing it as a bold controversial strategy not supported by the courts. <laughs> like Danny Ocean had a bold controversial strategy to rob Harry Benedict in Las <laughs> Vegas, and it was a crime because like not supported by courts. You know, it's it's such an outrageous framing that you almost have to like you almost have to smile at it because a bold controversial strategy not supported by the courts like that's describing something that you cannot do. Is it not like by definition? Hold on. Well, it's also something in that memo that's so really stood out to me is that this is a guy who went to Harvard Law, was a protege of Larry Tribe. And in fact, he was a person who uh, worked for Larry Tribe on on behalf of Al Gore in the year 2000. And in doing that, he's he then has gone on 20 years later to become the architect of the fake elector scheme. And you can, so there's no question that this is a person who's a highly trained lawyer. I mean, he's a person who was was Larry Tribe's protege, whether you like Tribe or not, no one would doubt Tribe as a preeminent legal scholar. And here he is in his own memo making these claims that are really odd, that even to a layperson just make no sense. Like he at some point says that the Electoral Count Act is probably unconstitutional because a, a former Congress cannot bind a future Congress to something, which like is so weird. That doesn't like when we think about what that person is saying. So Larry Tribe responded this week and was like, that's a bizarre thing to say. I've never said that. Like he's like, this is what Larry Tribe thinks. And Larry Tribe's like, I've never said anything. When I say that, I'm noting that a Congress in a current session can amend the laws that a previous Congress made. But but when you, if you accept what Chesaborough was saying in this memo, and I know this sounds like wonky and like minutia, but it's really important. In this memo, in an attempt, in this desperate attempt to find threads for Trump to Trump's team to pull on, or you know, oars to mine, he is suggesting, by virtue of that, this idea, like, well, if the ECA must not hold water because a former Congress can't find a future Congress. That would mean that every time a new Congress enters into yes. session. Every law that any previous cost has ever passed <laughs> are like moot, right? Like we'd yes. start, we would have to start over every time. And so, and I know that it just, I think it reflects like that is such a crazy thing for any lawyer to put forward, let alone a person with his credentials and specific background. But it makes me think, I mean, he was the architect of this memo, but it makes me think like, what was the environment like among yeah. those people in that time? Just like a, 
everyone probably has had a time professionally or personally where you're in a time of like hyper intensity, right? Where like mm-hmm. you're maybe you're working on something or something big is going on in your personal life or just a whole bunch of stuff. And you just, everything sort of feels like hot and fiery. And the stakes are so high. Yeah. Yeah. That to me is like what has been most interesting about reading some of the memos and exchanges with these people. Like they were all, it was like they were on a weird, like a weird trip together. Like, like it was like they were all going crazy. It's so strange and surreal to read. Can you imagine getting this memo in your email inbox? Like, like what is it like to, <laughs> yeah. to like, oh, I got an email from a really respected lawyer. I wonder what it says. Like, holy shit. Like this guy says that laws don't exist at the start of every new Congress. Like that's got to, <laughs> to your point, Lucy, like the energy in the room must be bizarre for something like this to even have occurred. So listen to the, you're reminding me now of this, I think it's bullet 95 from the indictment. This is, this is a, this is how the, how the prosecutors have described essentially what was, what was going on in the room on the morning of January 5th at the defendant's direction. I'm underlining that part. That is their, that is their bold and unsupported claim in, in this indictment so far, the defendant being Donald Trump, the vice president's chief of staff and the vice president's counsel met again with co-conspirator two, co-conspirator two now advocated that the vice president do what the defendant had said he preferred the day before, unilaterally reject electors from the targeted states. During this meeting, co-conspirator two privately acknowledged to the vice president's counsel that he hoped to prevent judicial review of his proposal because he understood that it would be unanimously rejected by the Supreme Court. <laughs> that would be Johnny Eastman. He didn't want them to look at two. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And yeah. John Eastman, who is now, um, now finds himself another perfect example of a person who wasn't probably wasn't like going to be most listeners cup of tea before this, but was highly respected Federalist Society guy, man about town in the circle, who now is going to be disbarred in the state of California and has asked the state of California to delay his disbarment proceedings so that he can deal with the, uh, you know, trial that he's anticipating going through and the legal criminal charges that he's facing. I mean, that's the that's like that fury of these people is so weird, wild. Yeah, it's very weird. So there's one other big, big question that I wanted to put on the table because as I was thinking about this segment today, I was wondering, you know, this is a question that I don't really know how either of you would answer or how really so many of the politicology guests would answer, which is, you know, there there really are only two outcomes here. Either a former president of the United States is found guilty of attempting to overthrow the election or he's not. And we're already dealing with lots of distrust in government institutions. There's a strong distrust in the DOJ that's fueling Republican politics. And I think there's a question worth pondering here. And I don't think there's a easy answer to this question. But if he's convicted, should Biden consider clemency of some kind? And we have, you know, historical precedent for something like this in the Gerald in the in the Gerald Ford Richard Nixon uh pardon but I'm wondering how you guys are both thinking about this given how deep your knowledge runs of political dynamics in the United States what would happen if Trump were convicted of such a crime and whether it would be better off for the health of our democracy um if he served a sentence or if we came to terms with um you know, finding him guilty and also commuting a sentence or 
lending him clemency. How are you thinking about that? It would be so unprecedented. So like, let's imagine that he is convicted. Where do you put him? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't put the former yeah. president of the United States in, in general population in, in a jail. So what are we going to do? Are we going to have him locked up in Mar-a-Lago, Pablo Escobar style? I mean, you know, some or, listeners right now are thinking, why not? Why can't you? Right? That's, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are a, there. Look, it's a, it's, it's a national security threat. He has access. He has access to a lot of sensitive information. He's had access to a lot of sensitive information, and you can't put him in a position. You, we cannot have the former president in a position where somebody can extract that from him, um, where somebody could attack him. I mean, think about the legitimacy crisis if he's attacked and, and injured if he's if he's in a prison. So we're going to have to get creative there. Look, I think it'll stoke the divisions further, but also I think there's so much that's going to happen between now and then. There's so much information that's going to come out. I think that for a long time, you know, Trump has kind of been invincible and he's always held on to the base. Is this the time that that finally cracks, that that perception changes? Probably not, but it certainly could. Um, but yeah, it, it's, I think that the further down that, that road you get, the scarier it is and the more there is to consider. And we're not prepared for either outcome, is, is my view. Yeah. I think all the outcomes are bad. Um, yeah. If he's acquitted, and of course, this is the we've been talking about one indictment, and he is facing a lot and maybe more. And so it is not unrealistic to think he could be acquitted of some and convicted of others. But, but writ large, if things shake out in favor of acquittal for him, then it becomes a rallying cry for Republicans that this was a witch hunt. And, you know, thank God they dodged this bullet, but it was a witch hunt. And I think Republicans will harden. I think in a way it will also create a permission structure for them around his behavior around the 2020 election. Um, Democrats will also be going crazy because they will feel that there's been a miscarriage of justice. Um, if he's convicted, then there will also, I think, be um, he will become even more of a martyr to the Republican base. The Republican base will harden the the, the Republican primary debate, which he apparently is not going to participate in, is coming in, up in a few weeks. And there's been interesting coverage around what should the questions be at the debate, especially in light of Trump not participating. And a lot of them have centered upon trying to hold these Republican candidates feet to the fire to say, what accountability should there be for Donald Trump or not if he's convicted? What, you know, where is that line for you? And I think that as we see those Republicans who presumably would kind of be the torchbearers if the guy is convicted, though, of course, he could also be convicted and still be president. That's an interesting first preview into maybe what we could expect. They're going to try on for size some messaging around those questions. So that'll be really interesting to revisit after the debate, that question in particular. Of course, they'll all try to skirt it. In terms of what the best outcome for Trump is, and I appreciate you bringing up the Nixon history. A lot of people wish Nixon had not been pardoned, right? Right. And and so so that's not as clean. It's not so clean. But I've thought about what would the best outcome for Trump be, even though I think Trump right now is making a calculus on some level, and I don't purport to be able to get inside the brain of this crazy man. But he has made the calculus, I think, on some level, in addition to being a megalomaniac who just like now is is addicted to running for president and being the star. He thinks, I think, that running for president is part of how he shields himself from accountability for this stuff. Ironically, I think, and I think he, at this point, if things keep trending this way, coupled with other national trends around, say, 
the abortion issue, which we're going to talk about yeah. momentarily, mm-hmm. it's not going to end well for him. Like, I'm pretty bullish on a Biden second term, actually, in a Biden-Trump matchup. But in that way, really, the best hedge for Trump in the face of convictions would be to get out and hope for a Republican win. Because I think if a Republican who is not Trump won the White House in 2024, I think Trump could pretty much bank on pardons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it would be like conviction plus pardon. And he'd actually probably have his best outcome. So... um, (laughs) I, I think you're so, so right, I, Lucy, that, that if he were to do that, that is the best outcome for him if he's being strategic. But I think yeah. I think he cannot get out of the way. So I think he's right. going to get convicted. I think he's not going to be the Republican nominee. And this is going to sound like a joke, but I mean it. I think him and RFK Jr. are going to run on a third-party slate. And I think oh, it's going to be a wild, wild election. Um, and yeah, if he was smart, I think he'd do exactly what you just said. I just don't Maybe. think – I don't think that his wow. need – his need to be in the spotlight is greater than his need to be strategic. In my mind. Maybe they could be the no labels ticket. They could be. The <laughs> no, I, I do. I do think he's going to be the Republican nominee. That's where we disagree. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's leave that there. I really want to get at more of like, what's the best for America, but let's like, yeah, yeah let's leave that there. On Tuesday, Ohio voters rejected a ballot measure that would have made it harder for them to amend the state constitution using future ballot measures. So if the ballot measure had passed, it would have required that amendments to the state constitution would have needed approval by 60% of voters, which is up from the current requirement of a simple majority. And it was part of a broader plan by Republicans nationwide to curb the use of ballot initiatives. They've been eyeing Ohio's playbook. Florida Republicans have weighed raising the state's threshold for constitutional amendments from 60% to two-thirds. Missouri lawmakers failed to raise the state's threshold 57% at the end of their legislative session. Uh, Arkansas, Idaho, North Dakota, Oklahoma have all considered plans to raise them, uh, raise fees, increase the number of signatures needed to get on the ballot, and impose other hurdles. And this particular one marked a significant victory for abortion rights supporters. Their, uh, Their comms around the measure were largely framed around the abortion rights issue after the state legislature ordered the referendum in an attempt to derail a November vote on a constitutional amendment that would guarantee abortion rights in the state. So late results on Tuesday had this measure losing by 13 points, 56 to 43, and turnout was really high. So uh, as of now, roughly 2.8 million votes cast, uh, dwarfing the 1.6 million votes cast in the state's 2022 primary elections, which had races for governor, U.S. Senate, and the House. So it's very unusual to see turnout that high for um, for an election like this. So, like, yes, this obviously sets up questions about the effectiveness of abortion rights as a mobilization tool going into the next major election. But while we're so far out from that, um, I'm thinking about the bigger question it raises about how we balance direct democracy with the legislative process. So there's there's two things happening here. First, on the abortion front, but then also I'm really curious about your thoughts, both of you, around the use of ballot measures like these to change policy um, at, at a time when America is sort of in the throes of, of populism. So in the early 20th century, 
uh, a lot of state legislatures have become unrepresentative through a combination of malapportionment and gerrymandering. Sound familiar? Uh, so states like Ohio adopted new political instruments like popular referenda and ballot initiatives to circumvent the legislatures. And that's that's how we got to this place. So Lucy, you, you brought up abortion in the previous segment. So I'd love for you to speak to that. But also, like, I'd love to zoom out then and talk about how we can balance these two things, direct democracy with our legislative system. I think a lot of people don't realize that less than half of states actually have the citizen initiative process. Some states have legislative referrals. We often will talk about like referrals, referenda and initiatives in the same in the same breath. They're quite different, right? Because often uh, many states have a referendum process. But in that scenario, a legislature is referring something that they've kind of already provisionally approved and they put it to mm-hmm. the voters. So something that is out of step with your gerrymandered jerk store state legislature is never going to be on the ballot in your state if you live in a state that doesn't have a citizen initiative process. For people who do live in, I say, I think people don't realize this because if you live in a state with a citizen initiative process, that seems so normal to you. And like such a, such as just sort of tried and true, um, tried and true uh, relief from a legislature that is not moving the ball forward in the way that citizens want. If you're not in a state that has citizen initiatives, you probably, this is all probably kind of foreign because it's never even occurred to you that you could not be dependent on those jerk store legislators. In an era where we see a lot of gerrymandering, it's really, I think, vital to states that do have the citizen initiative process. There's an, there are these sort of fringe elements, and you're right that this came up a lot in the progressive era. So states that came up around that time that came into existence, like a state like Arizona that became a state in 1912, and that has always been part of the fabric of a state like Arizona. Oh, but at the same time, like Ohio instituted their citizen initiative process in 1912. You can really mm-hmm. see how much energy there was around around this at the time. I think that in the in this modern iteration of state legislatures and and lawmakers trying to curb citizens access to direct democracy and I shouldn't even paint with such a broad brush because as far as I can tell it's republicans it's republicans yeah. in all of these places <laughs> because they are very out of step with how most voters feel. They are not only trying to curb attempts at um, giving citizens the ability to pass things through direct citizen initiative, they are also trying to make it harder to even get things on the ballot. So hmm. part of the provi- one of the provisions of issue one in Ohio also would have increased the um, burden of signature gathering when you do a citizen initiative and you already have to you have to gather tons of signatures. This isn't like, you know, you can't yeah. just go out tomorrow with your buddy and get a statewide citizen initiative. The threshold is high everywhere. In Ohio, it's I think it's hugely expensive. Super yeah. expensive. And you have to um you have to uh I mean in Ohio it's a big state, but you have to you have to collect something to the tune of like almost half a million validated signatures. A provision yeah. that wasn't discussed a lot in issue one, but is key, and I'm seeing this in states all over the country that legislatures are trying to do this. It's this increasing battle between urban and rural where mm. legislatures are also trying to curb the initiative process by saying you have to um, collect signatures in 
every county. So in Ohio, for example, you can currently, you have to collect in like 44 of 88 counties. And one of the provisions had issue one passed would have been like, you have to collect in every, all 88 counties, which means that there might be really rural counties with like five people, right? I'm exaggerating for a fact, but who are all, you know, who themselves have issue positions that are really out of step with people in the state as a whole. And you're just SOL in terms of getting signatures then because there just are not bodies for you to collect signatures from. Because in a lot of these states, like everywhere, everyone lives in a few cities, right? It's like in Arizona, 60% of the vote is in Maricopa County, right? So we're also seeing this real disconnect between urban and rural. And I have seen lots of versions in states that have citizen initiative processes in this last legislative session around the country of legislators trying to fiddle with this by increasing that urban, urban rural piece of making you go collect signatures other places. Other states have done things like they have, um, they have gone after uh, how people can collect signatures. So in some states where you used to, as you say, it's hugely expensive. You used to be able to do things like pay per signature, and it's expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like dollars per signature. It could be yeah. in a busy time. It could be 10 bucks a signature. It's hugely expensive. And, and to be so, clear, when we say pay for signatures, we're talking about hiring people to go get signatures, not paying right. the signature paid, giver. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right, paid canvasser. But, but right. you know, they've moved to things like you can no longer pay a canvasser per signature. You have to pay for the canvasser's time, right? right. That maybe right. sounds okay, on the face of it, just like on the face of it, having a higher threshold for a constitutional amendment in Ohio doesn't sound that offensive, but it's like, what is this motivated by? It is motivated yep. by lawmakers who are trying to consolidate power and are trying to prevent voters from having the will of the people be heard on, on a lot of issues. And in this week, it was abortion. Essentially making it procedurally impossible with these, with the, with the way they look, well, it, you're right on his face. doesn't sound super offensive, but when you actually try to go do it, you realize, oh, I actually can't fulfill the letter of the law here. Zach. This, yeah, this, this definitely was an attempt to put, put their thumbs on the scales. Right. Uh, but I think that, you know, the, the thing that I actually feel optimistic about is I think that this is the system working because it, you know, the, it was defeated. Right. I think that we saw an engaged citizenry show up and oppose something that they viewed as counter to their values. And I think that's like actually kind of a, a beautiful thing in a big moment. Um, because it wasn't that close in a state that you know, historically has been an important swing state, but is getting you know safer and safer for Republicans. They were caught off guard uh, by by the outcome here, and I think that's a yeah, I think I think it's a thing that we should all get to feel a little bit good about for a minute. You know, I also think though uh, that the, the these these systems and, and and laws were put in place during the progressive era as a counter to to a time in American history where corporations had too much control and too much power, and it's fascinating to me. That the party that is, you know, against woke corporations uh, is is the one who's kind of rolling back or t- attempting to roll back some of these systems that were put in place to combat that exact thing. It's the height of hypocrisy. So, can you talk a little bit about California's ballot initiatives or referenda, whatever they call them there, because they have a very similar problem, and it's Democrats who are trying to roll back access to um, essentially um, voter-led or citizen-led initiatives. 
Yeah, it's it's a disaster zone in California because there's too many of them. They're extremely con- confusing, but also California is is an enormous state, so the cost to communicate is is ridiculous. Um, you know, people are voting on you know a dozen or so plus sometimes of, of these things, and they have limited to no information, and tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars are spent, uh, and it doesn't necessarily lead to good outcomes or or positive outcomes. It leads to consultants making a bunch of money uh, and special interests being overrepresented. It's so, look, there there is a drawback to this, but also I think you know it's it, it exists for a reason. Well, Listen, why is it a problem if there are dozens of initial? Why is that a problem on its face? I mean, I just don't. Yeah. I think I don't agree. The reason I brought this up, to yes. be clear, is because I kind of want to get down to like bedrock principles yeah. here and whether we should, as citizens, have access to change policy via mechanisms like these or we shouldn't. And if it's yeah. a sliding scale, where do you put it? What should the thresholds be? How should we go about deciding how much? Uh, citizen-led um, policy change should be possible in a representative democracy, and and where do we draw the line? That's really what I'm what I'm getting at here. Yeah, it's it's such a great question because I think at the end of the day, uh, if it's one thing on the ballot, you know, you you can expect the voters are going to learn that. You can realistically hope that they do, but I think some at a certain point when you've got enough things on the ballot people kind of tune out and the likelihood that the folks voting on them are going to have an in, in-depth understanding of what they're voting on kind of decreases. And so maybe that's a cynical way of looking at it. Maybe that's an undemocratic way of looking at it. But I think at a certain point, it becomes too much. When you've got a ballot that's 10 pages, 12 pages long, uh, you know, down ballot drop-off exists. And then you can, that, that further kind of tweaks the numbers. It, it makes folks more disengaged. And so you know, to Lucy's point, should it exist? Absolutely. I completely agree. I totally hear you that that I think that that it's not unreasonable to expect that citizens are engaged and they follow things. I just think based on the numbers that I've seen and down ballot drop off, the more that you put on the ballot, the less likely folks are to have an understanding of what they're voting on, especially in a state like California, mm-hmm. where the wording can be very confusing. Um, what it actually is can can be, you know, it can be twisted. And then you've got these these really, really expensive and actually particularly with the campaigns for 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 issue advocacy it's done through C4s, C3s. And so it's not, it's, it's sometimes subject to different reporting requirements. And so you might not know as much about who's funding which side. So you might think you're voting in favor of something, but you're actually voting to oppose. And it just is a bit of a mess. Um, and so at a minimum, they need to find a way to clean it up and more clearly communicate information or prevent the spread of disinformation around these, these ballot initiatives. So Lucy, on, on principle, where do you draw the line? I could say the same in terms of it's you know the idea that it's impossible for voters to get properly educated on um, on you know what their position should or shouldn't be on any given ballot initiative. I mean, by the same token, how could we then expect voters to be reasonably informed about the intricacies of the policy positions of the uh, you know dozens of candidates that they're voting on, right? Who are going to go affect those policies and. So I'm just not that sympathetic to it. I'm not that sympathetic to the idea that citizen initiatives are uh, a, a, a center for consultant grift because guess what? So are candidate campaigns, right? Political campaigns and super and, PACs. And, 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 <laughs> and in, terms of, uh, in terms of ballot, I mean, well, maybe uh, states that are having that issue or perceive that issue need to do a better job of uh, reforming their... Um, their ballot format. Maybe the citizen, maybe the initiatives should go up higher on the ballot, or maybe they should be formatted differently, or maybe they should have um, 
a different process for adopting what the short text is in the ballot in on the ballot initiative. I I just think that in this era, it's really important. I think to, in my opinion, take the uh, accept the ways in which initiatives are not perfect, but appreciate the way in which it is a it is uh, the last sort of resort relief for voters. And when you think about the fact that half of states don't have an initiative process, like states like Texas or Georgia, right? That 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 just really indicates to me that they are never what if what what do Texans do in the face of the kind of um in, I mean in Texas women are dying from sepsis because they don't have access to safe abortion when they are miscarrying, right? Texas women and Texas citizens don't have the kind of access to fix that that Ohioans do. And so while it's true that there are forms of, this is all on a sliding scale, right? Of like indirect to direct democracy. And I am not, to be clear, you can get real crazy with this. And there are forms of direct democracy that people advocate for that I I'm not too hot on for one is participatory democracy. And that's the idea that voters themselves, and this has been piloted in cities around the country and other types of public bodies should go and like vote on the budget or like vote on individual things. To me, I I totally, totally draw the line at that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But I do think I am, I am hot to trot on, on initiatives. And Zach, I'll mention that in my day in California, no, when I was getting started, California was such a, a wild place. And you maybe remember this, that you could time your initiative in California to get on an off cycle ballot. And now you can't do that anymore. Those are, that's an example of the kind of thing like, yeah, it probably made sense to not do that, right? It's good they fixed that. So I think there are fixes to these things that we can do without way curbing the people's right to get initiatives on the ballot. And for listeners wondering why that might be a thing you want to do, low turnout tends to change the outcome of, uh, of elections like that. Because then you can get your special interest to come out and vote right. for it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> then yeah. you pick who comes out to vote for you. The, yeah. more, you, the more you learn about politics and, and the inner workings of political operatives, the, the just more appealing and, and uh, grime-free it seems. It's also cheaper if you do an off-year ballot initiative. You know, you don't have to compete with the presidential. Don't have to compete with the midterms or the primaries. You know, it's uh, there, there's some perks for the consultants in addition to shifting the electorate. But yeah, and I th- you get I think paid right. that year. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we all got to eat. We all got to work. Whether yeah. political consultants in an off year. Yeah, I think they should reform this, and I think there probably should be. And I, I know, Lucy, we don't we don't see eye to eye on this. I think there should be a few fewer. Um, but also, if, if if you're hiring for a ballot initiative, you know, look me up on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. States across the country controlled by Democrats and Republicans are purging their Medicaid programs of millions of low-income enrollees for the first time in three years. I uh, This story caught my attention because it sort of weaves together a a, a braid of themes that I kind of want to explore with you. But um, just to set it up, this, uh, this comes after a pandemic policy meant to prevent people from suddenly losing health coverage that expired uh, this spring. 
Nearly 4 million Americans have been dropped from Medicaid in the last three months, and most of those have been because of paperwork issues. That number is projected to balloon to 15 million by this time next year. And it marks the biggest reshuffling of the health insurance landscape since Obamacare launched. And it comes right as Biden is beginning his reelection effort aimed at convincing working class voters that they're better off now than they were four years ago. And some of Biden's allies are now talking about how they're concerned that when you mix these coverage losses and the pain that's going to be felt with the entrenched skepticism about the state of the economy, it's going to undercut his core message that Bidenomics is driving the biggest gains for people who need them the most. And the people Bidenomics aims or claims to help the most. And so there's a, there's several different threads here, but I want to start with this one. And I guess the question is, what what's it going to mean for Biden when millions of Americans lose their Medicaid coverage stack? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's pretty shocking. I mean, it, it, sh- it shouldn't be shocking, but it's still shocking to me that the pro-life party or the stated pro-life party is making it harder for those in the greatest need to get access to care. Uh, people are going to die. They don't have to. People are going to be sicker than they need to be. They're not going to get access to, to medicines that they need. And it's because of paperwork. And it's going to be in the reddest states. Um, it's not going to happen in blue states. It's not going to happen very much as, as much in purple states. And so the, those with the greatest need that are the most skeptical of, of the current administration that have the least trust in the system are going to be hurt the most. And what's it going to do? It's going to drive extremism. Uh, it's going to drive anger and rage. And in some cases, rightfully so. Uh, you know, imagine imagine if you are a person in need and you can't get access to the care that you need to stay alive or to stay healthy, or you've got a relative or a loved one. Um, this is bad governance to to the core. This is hurting those. You know, th- this is hurting folks that are part of the Republican base. This is hurting folks who are going to be Republican primary voters, and it's partisan politics, and they're going to use it to try and wield it like a cudgel over Biden in the upcoming election. And it's craven. I mean, it's craven and it's gross and it's wrong. And it makes me really, really sad to see because a lot of people who maybe I don't necessarily agree with on, on some things politically, but are still people, they're going to suffer mm. because of this decision. And it makes me really, really sad. Yeah. Go ahead, Lucy. I have a slightly different perspective on this. <laughs> go ahead. Let's, let's have it. I think we have to take a step back, not to comment on the electoral, what what the electoral implications of this are for Biden, but I think we have to take a step back and just have a little bit of a refresh on why people are being purged off of the Medicaid rolls, which is, and Medicaid, to back up a tiny bit, is a federal program that is jointly administered between the federal government and the states. So states have a lot of latitude in how they run their Medicaid programs. So in your state, there's probably, you know, the name of a cost containment program in your state that's like, you know, Missouri, this, that, or the other thing. You know, in Arizona, it's called Access, right? Whatever it is in your state, that's Medicaid in your state. So they're jointly administered programs. About 10 years ago, after the Affordable Care Act was passed, there was a big push as part of the ACA to get states to expand Medicaid. And by expanding Medicaid, states had to agree that they would set the um, set th- certain thresholds for who got coverage, and the the federal government was going to match funding, but states themselves are also on the hook. So this is not just like, you know, the federal government gives states money for Medicaid and the states are saying, no, thank you, because we want people to die in an alleyway, right? Like, there are a lot of craven politicians, but this is this has an impact on the bottom line 
of a state's coffers. And so at most recent, this is for people, the, the kind of federal minimum for Medicaid enrollment is that you have to meet something like 138% of the federal poverty line, which is very little. I think in 2023, it's like $20,000 a year in income. So there's no question that these are people who are are really in need. Need help. As Zach says, mm-hmm. definitely need help. Now, during COVID, when we passed the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the federal government created certain incentives to help states avoid, and they couldn't basically, to, to require, but also to shoulder the burden um, to that prevented states from purging people from the rolls when they lost eligibility. So that would be something like they suddenly make more money or they have a life, a life circumstance that changes where they do not meet Medicaid eligibility anymore. Basically, during right. COVID, as part of the emergency that was COVID, the deal was we're not even going to check, right? Like these people are going right. to stay on the program. So now there are two things happening. One, that has run out because the federal emergency over COVID is over. And that means that states aren't getting this extra buffer from the federal government to help with this, but also that they can begin to and purge. I don't even like the word purge because that's very yeah, loaded. It's got they a really ne- begin, negative connotation. Right. They can begin to um, update, clean the roles of people who are on Medicaid. And and so in so doing that, the process is is pretty clear, Right. They're, these states are required. They've all gone through big audits. Many of them are going through. This began. There was notification that this was going to be ha- happening. In some places, you know, states are going through a nine-month or longer process to do this. And states are required not only to notify people by mail that they need to fill out a new form, but also knowing that mail is not the most modern format for communicating with people. They are also, and also probably that the Medicaid population are people who don't, mm. I mean, they're, they probably yeah. move around Difficult a lot. Difficult to reach them via mail. Yep. They're also required to reach out to them via phone, email, or text. And so, and then they say you have 30 days to fill out this form. I am, I have compassion toward people who are in terrible situations. I don't, though, see that this is the kind of, like I don't, I don't think that the way that this story is being cast is uh, correct. I think that you know these basically the people who are then being purged, so-called purged, are being taken off the rolls because they have failed to respond to this form. And I don't know a good answer to show that they are still eligible. Like I don't know what the answer is, but I don't think that that's that onerous. And I just don't like we have to be able when we're providing assistance to people, it's okay to ask them to check back in <laughs> via text yeah. or phone yeah. to say yes, I still meet the criteria. So I agree it's always sad to think of people in these positions. And by the way, just to be clear, Something like even the people who are going to be taken off, so-called purged, something like 90% of them, their children will still be on chip because we have a separate Mm -hmm. program for children. I just think this is like actually a policy, a kind of wonky policy issue that is being cast as a binary that it just is not. 
Yeah, this 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 raises the question between of like what is good governance versus what is the political uh, consequence going to be? And there's obviously going to be a backlash anytime you cut programs. It doesn't matter if people understand why or whether a program is actually being cut or curtailed back to its original pre-emergency state. Um, there's still going to be a political consequence. But this the other thing I wanted to get at here is is the cost. Because this also comes as the Treasury Department increased its net borrowing estimate for this quarter up to a trillion dollars, which is it was it was seven hundred thirty three uh, billion it had predicted in May, and part of that borrowing estimate is due to a bigger cash balance plan for the end of September. Uh, another chunk of that increase was due to projections for weaker revenues, higher spending. So we've talked about debt deficits, the debt spiral that we're in on the show before, and like one of the things I wanted to throw out here is that there's a 2017 study that was published in Psychological Science showing that contrary to popular belief, older people generally have more positive emotions and are more optimistic when they're gauging risks and they're less deterred by risk than younger adults are. And I wonder how we can think about the gerontocracy when we're thinking about the risk that's associated with deficit spending. The people who are making decisions on how to spend our money are not necessarily the people who would be planning for the future in the way that young people would be. And so I, I see a paradox here. Uh, and I, I don't know how, how to address it, but it's one, it's one feature of the problem of where we should allocate money. And if, you know, if Zach, you think it is good that we sort of spend, uh, you know, I, continue, continue, keep all these people on the rolls, cover them for as much as they need, right? Where do you draw the line and how should, how should we be thinking about the age of the people making decisions and where we allocate our resources and the people that rightly want us to be planning for the future in a responsible way fiscally? That's my question. Yeah. You know, I think there's, I think there's two questions there There to me. Uh, one is the gerontocracy, which I'm very excited to talk about. But going back to, to the Medicaid, I try and look at what the impact's going to be, and I try and keep it simple. And I think what the impact of this is going to be is that there are going to be a lot more people that need Medicaid that no longer have access to it after this. And so now, are there are there ways that they can they can clean up their roles and do so? Absolutely, you know, are there folks that are on that that shouldn't be perhaps, um, and should something be done about it? Yes, but I think that the way that they're going about it, I think, is pretty drastic and pretty dramatic. And I think the net, at least in the short term, is going to be really really negative because you know, again, looking at the cost, if you've got more sick people who don't have access to Medicaid, um, that's 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 going to cost money too, right? It's going to be a different, it's going to be a, you know, the cost is going to come from a different source and it's going to be, you know, different accounting, but it's still going to be a net negative. Going back to the gerontocracy though, Ron, uh, yeah, they've got less skin in the game. Like I hate to be the asshole to say it, but if you're like 84, you're not going to be here for that long. If you're, you know, if you're 44, you're going to be here for a lot longer. You're thinking about different stuff. And so I believe that study. Um, I, and I believe that we are making decisions with, you know, folks that are, that are much older, um, that are, that are not looking to look towards the future in the same way. If you're 78, climate change is less of a pressing and permanent threat than if you're 28. It's just a fact. When we were discussing this on our production call yesterday, uh, and we we talked about a quote from Michelle Obama from 2020, you guys will probably remember this. She did an interview with Shonda Rhimes for Harper's Bazaar and answered a question about young people who were unsure about voting. And Michelle Obama said, quote, would you let your grandma decide what you wear on a night out to the club? Would you want her picking out the car you drive or the apartment you live in? Not many people want someone else making their decisions for them, especially when that person might not see the world the same way as they do. End quote. My grandmother actually has excellent taste. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, 
I wonder, like, how applicable is that quote to the current state of the gerontocracy? It's interesting because it actually makes me think about something else that you touched on oh. in this segment about the treasury and, you know, our our debt. <laughs> and years ago, when um, a balanced budget amendment seemed like something that wasn't totally outside the realm of possibility and that we could demand fiscal um, sanity among the U.S. Congress, I remember writing a piece at the time in the Daily Caller uh, but it was about how how much more impacted young people are by economic downturns, by, um, and at the time in particular, this was in the wake of the recession. And, um, and it was about how people who come of age early in life, say in, as young adults, as people in their 20s and 30s, during terrible economic downturns, turns, we really underestimate how their whole lives are affected by it. Like they actually, it's really hard generationally to ever truly catch up. And statistically, people who come of age during that time, and what you said at the top of this reminds me of this, and I'll have to find the data and send it to you. It's obviously like 15 years old now. But statistically, people who come of age in those times are much less likely to pursue risk in the market. Um, they're less likely to become entrepreneurs. And some of it is practical. And then some of it is just the like access to capital, access to, um, you know, feeling that you can shoulder that risk. But some mm. of it is social, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. And just what becomes totally. how you're wired because of how you've totally. come of age. So when when you talk about how we're being governed by people who haven't had that it makes me think about that link i mean when you're talking about being totally. governed by a generation that hasn't had that experience at all and actually just you know went to college when it cost five dollars and um bought a house for seven dollars and now i'm you know and has multiple homes and wishes life weren't just so challenging for boomers <laughs> yeah <it's, laughs> it cuts it feels different it's really different it's really different. You know, Ron, we've talked about this uh, off yes. off the podcast sometimes, but you know, there's, I've said it before. If there's a voting age minimum, could there thus be a voting age maximum? And I think the answer <laughs> is probably no, and that's like unconstitutional. You're this Vivek. <laughs> You're this Vivek. Yeah. <laughs> but look, you know, it, it's like, yeah, look, you get you got to take the driver's test again. I don't know. Uh, it's true. Is a seventeen year old. That's really, going to be really? bad for me. <laughs> is a 17-year-old really, really in, in less of a position to cast a vote than a 97-year-old? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> a great question. Anyway, we're not gonna we're not gonna answer it, but I I thought this was a really I I agree with you, Lucy. I think the story's being cast in a uh in an inaccurate way. And um and obviously, you know, it, it will be exploited for political purposes, but there's a whole lot more sort of wrapped up in it than I think um, that I think listeners should be thinking about. We are up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week. There's a, been a lot of big news and it's been really tough to sort through it all. Um, so I'm curious what you brought this week, uh, Zach. Well. I think right now, sorry, this is going to go like a, a very different direction than your readers are listening or your listeners are, are used to. Conference realignment in college football. It is something that we must be paying attention to. Okay. It's been historic. Say again? Go ahead. I was just saying, oh. okay. 
Yeah. So look, you know, I think over over the last couple of decades, you know, you've had these conferences that have they've changed around, they've moved around a little bit. Uh, college sports, it's always been, you know, an amateur amateur uh, endeavor. Players haven't been played. The NIL has completely changed things. Players getting played more and now paid more. And now we are seeing colleges uh, consolidate within conferences. And it's becoming much more of a minor league for the pros than it is anything to do with you know being student athletes. It's going to change mm. the you know the revenue that's going to a bunch of different colleges. It's going to impact you know where where resources are going for for research. It's going to have an impact far beyond that of college football. And I don't think there's a ton of discussion about what it means beyond just hey, does Oregon still play Oregon State? Um, but there is very very real world research based consequences depending on college football conference realignment, and it's something I think that we should all be following a little bit more. Good one. That's a good one. And actually, I that was on my list of as a good under the radar story too because there's a I, and I don't even follow sports but there's a <laughs> I love the Chronicle of Higher Ed and at the top of the of uh, the Chronicle of Higher Ed's website today there is a piece um by a writer named Maggie Hicks about conference realignment and how it's going to have really big implications for higher ed so I think that's a mm. uh, Ron did you expect to get that from both Lucy and I What's up? <laughs> That's not mine. I have another one. <laughs> no, no. I'm like, this is a total. I mean, I'm glad you that you brought it up because, like, God knows, I'm not bringing sports stories. Uh, it's a complete blind spot for me, and it's a really good. It's a really good thing to watch. Like, I just don't understand it very well. I'm not um, a college sports kind of person, um, but it's good. I get it. So the, the listeners can't see you, but when I started out with that, your face was like, you've got to be kidding me. Tell me if something better than this act. <laughs> Lucy, what'd you bring? There are so many this week, but one thing that I, that kind of piqued my interest and it's really hard to get information on, mostly because it's only being covered by right-wing outlets, but it's being covered enough that I think maybe there's something there and it will pop and become a story that we all are hearing about more. But in Massachusetts, a Catholic couple is suing the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families saying that they were blocked from becoming foster parents because they would not, um, they, they said that they would not be affirming to a child who identified as LGBTQIA. Um, which on the face of it, I can completely understand that policy, but it also feels really tricky in how we how we start to um, tease those things out in terms of how as you know states how do we how do we determine what is care versus not when we're talking about children in the foster system I don't know much more about it beyond that but it just seems like a case that you know it's it's culture wars showing up in a place that we don't often think of and it just seems like a case that'll have really, really interesting implications. And I assume that the way that Massachusetts does, you know, does this is probably similar to other states and that it might be an excellent policy. And we may find out that what they did is absolutely exactly right. But it just, it, it brings up a lot of questions for me that I think will be interesting to learn more about. That we probably will be litigating into 2024. It's on, it seems. Or beyond. Especially I am watching aliens. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't not. You've been watching what? Non, non-human biologics recovered. Have you guys seen the congressional hearings about this? Like, it, the story just keeps on giving. I've been watching these stories trickle out since the New York Times piece in 2021, I think. But like the 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 testimony from these officials 
this was a couple of weeks ago, but there has been sort of more revelations trickling out, is that the U.S. has recovered non-human biologics from alleged UFO crash sites. Let me repeat that. The U.S. has recovered non-human biologics from alleged UFO crash sites. That's all. That's my look ahead. That's, that's, keep, keep watching this space. That's all. You, you know, Ron, every now and then I forget that you're from Nevada, and then you say something like that. I'm like, oh, that's right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, Area 51 uh, in the backyard. <laughs> you know, I used to drive you know, by I'm, it. Yeah, and in just one, one state over in my home state, uh, we had a governor in the 90s who then became himself the number one, Five Symington, like the number one witness of uh, alien lights and like, oh, you know, regrets really? that regrets that he, um, you know, says that he was forced to help cover it up at the time, but that he saw the weird lights that everyone else saw. And he's like written about this in his memoirs. And yeah. So the people that I got abducted. Then you go Can over to like- New Mexico. No. Oh, then it gets real wild. <laughs> <laughs> so y'all remember when people used to get like talk about getting abducted and we all kind of like laughed yeah. at them and like it was never taken seriously like should we revisit that like is that I, is that worth now taking seriously like i think so i mean i think so i don't put a tinfoil hat on me and call me whatever a believer but yes if i had a podcast i would definitely have somebody on who'd been abducted <laughs> by aliens. Call That's all I'm saying, an aliens podcast i think that the likelihood i think that it is ridiculous to act like it's unlikely that there's other other life because that seems crazy. But yes. it also equally seems very implausible that there is other life that we would be able to communicate with in such a way where our for our format of interaction would be like that they have the concept of abduction and would be right. abducting us and war. Like we keep up, we often like apply really kind of like human earthly concepts right. to right. these would be aliens. But I also will say we were joking about Western states. You know why people in Western states see more stuff? Because everyone who lives in these Eastern states have a ton of light pollution. They can't see the stars. All, you, have, you can't see anything. So you can't yeah, see anything. People in Western states see yeah. more, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> there was a Western bias in this podcast, but I think it's all right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, anyway, we're definitely coming back to aliens. Um all right, guys, let's uh, flip over to Politicology Plus. Before we do, um, where can everybody find you on the internet? Do you want to be found on the internet, Zach? I am off Twitter. I am, I'm, off, I'm off X now. X. And I got to tell you, my life is better for it. Uh, you can find me on <laughs> LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram, I guess, but I don't really get on any of those. It's awesome. Like, Get <laughs> offline. You're going to be happy. You can read the New York Times and the Washington Post and get the same stuff still. It takes you know, a couple more hours. You, you can even be fine. read the paper version of Ooh, it, which is so sad. You can turn those it's pages. Like the- you can feel good about yourself. <sighs> uh, and I'm, I'm going to plug something really quickly, Ron. If you're listening to this and you're thinking about running for office, do it. There are a bunch Especially of loonies doing it. if you're young. They're, yes. <laughs> if you're thinking about running for office, do it. You're probably going to lose the first time. You got a better chance the second time. Start now. Get into it. There you go. But if you're over 97 and thinking of running for office, <laughs> also call back. You shouldn't run, and you also shouldn't be allowed to vote. You heard it here. (laughs) (laughs) Lucy's still on X, I believe. Yes, I'm still hanging by a thread on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell, and I will just take the liberty of saying that uh, when we were getting ready to record, 
um, I had, I like went off camera, like took my headphones off for a minute to go get my computer better situated or whatever. And I came back to a conversation between Zach and part of the politicology team. And I had, I just sort of kind of came into the conversation and they were saying things like, yeah, I know. I just like, you know, I want to be off of it. Like I feel better when I'm off of it. Like I, <laughs> Zach's like, you, you yep. totally like read more. I have better focus. They're going on and on and on. And I was like, okay, I just came into kind of like kind of a personal conversation. They're like talking about, I don't know, like performance enhancing drugs or something, whatever, right? Like <laughs> caffeine, Adderall, I don't know, whatever. And then they were talking about being on Twitter. <laughs> they were talking about being on Twitter and I thought they were talking about like Adderall. <laughs> I am very, very, very rarely on Twitter. Maybe that will change as the new election year comes up. But uh, but you can DM me there if you want to wait for a while, <laughs> and maybe I'll maybe maybe I'll see it uh, at Ron Steslo. But for now, uh, that's uh, that's it for today. We're going to go talk about um, Lizzo and Donald Trump in Politicology Plus, and um, we'll talk to you there. Bye. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.